Today I'm speaking with Matthew Baird. He is an Appalachian mystic from Tennessee and our friend. Please enjoy the show. Welcome, Matthew. It's really nice to have you on. Glad to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, um, I actually live in a small rural area um, known as the Cumberland Plateaus in Tennessee in the United States. Um, it's a part of the Appalachian Mountains. I've lived here most of my life. Um, you could say um, one of those jack-of-all-trades, master of none. I um, am big into genealogy. Um, local historian, folklorist. Um, I'm an avid paranormal researcher, spiritualist, and great pumpkin enthusiast. We just uh, painted some pumpkins uh, for the live stream the other day. Sincerity from all that for all of the eye to see. Yeah, uh, I will. I will send you some pictures of that very soon. How do you uh, define your magical practice? I think I've tried to avoid labels for most of my life um, because especially now when everything has turned to, oh, well, I'm this or this, when you're trying to establish your brand, which I don't have a brand, which makes things a lot easier. Um, I think in today's age that I would probably consider myself maybe settled upon um, Appalachian mystic. I know that um, there was a quote I always liked from Joseph Campbell, who, you know, wrote The Power of Myth and such, that said, the water in which the mystic swims is the same water in which a madman drowns in. So that kind of stuck with me. And, and if I have to have a label, then... That's one that I don't see a lot these days, so I, I kind of dig it. Awesome. You're an investigator, obviously. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some recent uh, investigations you've been on? There has been, um, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with um, Hellier and Penny Royal and the, the Somerset, Kentucky. Um, situation as it is, it's it's just a a big, giant, massive weirdness. There was a date that we went up, and in and it's my first time in some of the caves there, and in Kentucky and especially Tennessee, um, there are so many caves here. There's like more caves here than. In a, in most of the world. And it was my first time going to one of the, the famous caves that's becoming well known in the area. And it just led into a series of events over the last two months where when I was in the cave, a resident of Somerset actually reached out to me and um, they had had a dream. And it had come into a cave situation in their dream. And so they didn't know why they were reaching out to me. But we had went halfway to the location 
and the it's as the entire forest was saying stop you don't need to go any further and i was really hoping to go back up before um Salwin, but the i it just so happens that today of all days that we record this that the person sent me a message and said um what i wanted to show you is gone now uh someone took a chainsaw and and removed it from the area so i i don't know where the investigation goes at this point uh, i never actually got to make it uh to the cave system and the the tree mass that was there as kind of a sign that it was there um it's gone now and things continue to unfold wow so basically you're uh, you've lost uh, lost the reason to go there pretty much that's the interesting part of it in her estimation uh she sent me and what she had been calling it was the fawn because the the tree that had uprooted by this cave system was in the shape of a fawn that's i mean that was her sign that something was there um someone has removed that now and as i had pointed out to her that doesn't mean that the spirit is gone from the area just the sign that was calling out to you to find you found it so in essence maybe it doesn't matter anymore that that part is gone and you've explored this cave before or not uh, this cave i've never actually reached it um we got halfway there uh you have to go through a creek bed and a lot of researchers will tell you that there's things you you look for especially in this area which is limestone um things that are near railroad tracks and running water and this particular area in Somerset has all three right there together. And you have to actually go through the creek bed to get to this area. So someone has went through the creek bed with dropping temperatures now that it's October and took a chainsaw and removed this. Took it where we don't know. But I've never actually got to the cave. I'm I'm hoping to go there still. Um but it just, there has been a lot of back and forth of what is necessary and what is, I, I suppose, what's ego to go there or not? Is it a, I guess it, it poses the question, is it enough that you know that it's there or do you have to go all the way through? It, it depends on, on what, uh, what it was calling you there for. There's that as well. Um, if you've done what it wanted you to do, then you don't technically have to go there. Right. But until everything unfolds, you probably won't know that. Uh, and if you end up going there, regardless, you could find new information. Um, it's very interesting. It's going to be a, when it's all said and done, once it's, once there's a, a not a, if not a definitive end, if there is a 
a stopping point in the story. Um, everything will probably be made public, but at this point, it's just, it's still ongoing, I guess. In process. In tandem. Exactly. In tandem, yes. Uh, in asking that last question, I skipped over the question I was supposed to ask. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your tradition, the traditions of your family and area you grew up? I live, um, as I mentioned, in the Cumberland Plateau of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, I live in a large county with a small population. Um, there, this was part of a train town at one point between uh, Cincinnati, Ohio and Chattanooga, Tennessee. That also included Somerset. Um, Somerset was one of the stops before you got to the stops in my county. But other than once the train died down and the interstate bypassed our county, it became lesser known. It became especially more rural. There's only, we've only got one big store, which is the Walmart. And it's between the, what they call the Daniel Boone National Forest and the Big South Fork River and Recreation Area. So we're kind of the town in the middle of these large forest areas. So there's a lot of energy between the two places. That makes for a meeting place. Oh, absolutely. And as for my, you had asked for what traditions in my family. Um, most of my people have been in the same place for at least seven generations. So what they brought from the places they originally came from, which would have been, uh, we're mostly Scott, what we call Ulster Scott or Scott Irish here. Um, you have the, the native tribes and everything's been kind of hand, handed down through necessity more than um, practice. And that includes folklore, that includes remedies. Uh, you have most of my family through the generations were farmers. Um, my own grandparents swore by the, the farmer's almanac with the moon cycles. And you would look at the almanac and there would be uh, this drawing of this woman and you realize later in life that that was you know the goddess Demeter that was helping the farmers all all through the year and it's little things like that that you realize that deity has been with you all along it's just either been forgotten or hidden in the Ozark area they've hidden their practices in their farming uh, uh, practices and even in in uh, in modern times in their Christian church ceremonies they they've hidden a lot of traditions that way yeah it's it do you find that oh absolutely it's the same here um my grandparents my um especially my great aunt she was married to a um, preacher and she could tell you 
the Bible frontwards and backwards. But then she would also do um, a, a form of divination where she would flip through the Bible and then she would stop on the page and she would pick a, a passage and that would speak to her on what her question was, just like someone would maybe use tarot or other divination mm -hmm. means that she used her Bible. Um, but at the same time, she had intuition. She had, um, I mean, she knew things before my ex was pregnant with her first child. She knew she was pregnant before the doctors did. The sign, the signs would be obvious to, to her more. Right. Than, that's, that's interesting. What, uh, what folklore is prevalent in, in, in your area? There's a lot of, um, there's a book by Charles Edwin Price that's called um, Haints, Witches, and Boogers. And that pretty much, um, other than, you know, just normal folklore of, you know, and remedies, then you'll have your haints being ghost stories, um, witches. The witch thing goes all the way back to especially in this area with the Southern Baptist Bible Belt, mm. um, where you have the the King James Version where it introduced um, thou shalt not um, suffer a witch to live. And so in this area, that especially that was so superstitious anyway, um, you know, everything was blamed on witches even later here than it would have been in other areas of the country because yeah. we kept a lot of our superstitions and such. And the boogers were just what we're now calling, you know, Bigfoot and um, other cryptids and such. Uh, the folks that were seeing them back then, they just had their own colloquialisms. Wild man, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, the Tennessee wild man is, is what I, before I even knew what Bigfoot was, I knew about the wild man. I knew about, um, Dark 30. I knew about these, these local things that I was supposed to watch out for at night. And then later on, I grew up in the, the late seventies, early eighties. And that's when you would have things like in search of and you would say, Oh, here's Bigfoot and here's this and here's this. And you're like, Oh, okay. And you would learn that these places had the same legends, but under different names. Yeah. Each each town, each uh, village would have its own uh, concept of the same thing. Be the same as the town deity or something like that. Oh, well. absolutely. Here, it seems to be he Hecate. Uh, there's like 13 different places named Hecate. In, in, uh, the, the greater, uh, Vancouver area. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, the, and it all spun from a ship that was named Hecate that, uh, got marooned for a short period of time. And the captain, uh, really loved the island and, and the area and, uh, created it created a whole buzz, and and now there's 13 locations, including a mountain named Hecate. 
Is that there would be 13? That's, that just is kind of like the, uh, the icing on top. Yep. Old traditions brought by Europeans and the Native Americans, those traditions in a lot of areas, particularly in the Ozark area, which I now know a little bit about because I'm working with a person there, they become kind of intertwined. How intertwined and blended do you find the folk traditions and magical traditions of your area have become? Oh, absolutely. Um, you can't have one particular set just come in and be there. Like, um, as an aside, I was reading today, they were talking about the uh, Jack Daniel um, Whiskey Distribution Center and that Jack Daniel learned um, his craft basically from um, a slave that was still um, hadn't been freed as of yet. And so he's learning through his own traditions um, to make, that he knew to make whiskey and he's learning, you know, how to distill it through this African-American and their traditions. Um, in this particular area, it's, it's becoming kind of a fad that what we do here is, um, maybe like a hillbilly hoodoo or I know, um, there's a local author that's become popular recently, uh, with backwoods witchcraft and a lot of people call it granny magic. I know that when I was younger, Coming from, you know, I have ancestors that came from Scotland, Ireland, um, some are Welsh, some are English. Um, with that, you have the, what they call the Scandinavian surprise. So if yeah. you go even, and I, especially when I got deep into genealogy and I found, you know, where everything was leading, um, you have that question, do I honor the deities of my ancestors? Or do I honor what I feel is here in calling to me personally? Or do I do both? I mean, and that's everybody's spiritual path. Uh, yeah. I know that um, personally, um, you know, even when the, the Romans invaded um, the Celtlands, the, the gods were localized to tribes like what you were talking about earlier. Um, each tribe yeah. had their own gods. Um a lot of them would have links to sacred forests and water paths that were important to them. We're the same here. I mean, it's mainly, I would, I guess most folks in this area, especially being in the Bible Belt, it's, it's a, it's a definite mismatch of different beliefs. Uh, personally, I'm, especially in the last five years, I've been really called um, the grandmother spider. Um, I know that, uh, Kernunos has been very instrumental and even a deity that isn't really native to this area. Um, I associate with the, the trickster Raven. With Raven, um, that would bring in an, a native aspect to, uh, to it, which and grandmother spider as well. Those 
would be part of the land. They would, uh, the native community, uh, in that area was very, they, they stayed in that area for a long time and then were moved out as Europeans came in. And, uh, a lot of, uh, it's a Shoshone, uh, people in your area, isn't it? Mainly, it's, mainly there were the Cherokee, the Creek, um, and of course before that we had the Hopewell and the Adena. Those, those were mainly the ones around here. But then you also have to look at, if you follow the theory of um, the Pangean Mountains, that, you know, the the Appalachian Mountains and the, yeah. you know, like the Scottish Highlands were the same mountains. So when the, especially the Scots-Irish um, came over here, they're, they're seeing a place that feels like home to them. And yeah. And it's especially in this area where um, the native tribes, this area was usually either revered as holy or as um, grounds for hunting. Um, very few would even try to farm here because the farming was so bad. But these hardy immigrants came over and felt the, the this place that felt so much like home and even though it was harder for them to to live in this area, they they found a way. When when some place feels like home, you're you're more inclined to want to stay there and 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 make home. Absolutely. What traditions in your your area do you feel are starting to disappear? A lot of the, and this is one of the things I kind of I kind of worry about. I know. With your elders, there is so much just knowledge being lost every day. Um, when my grandmas died, um, I had wished I'd had the technology to, you know, just spend a week just recording them, asking them questions, um, knowing what I knew now and having that knowledge then to, to have the answers. Um, and, but at the same time, there are people who are writing down a lot of the traditions. And even, as I mentioned through genealogy, there was a genealogist around here that would stop when I was a child and talk to my grandmother who knew everybody and, you know, knew who everybody was kin to. And now reading their books, reading their um, articles and stuff that they wrote back then, I'll hear her words because I'm seeing, you know, her being quoted all these years later. And that's why I think that's kind of what I do. Why I do what I do is for my part to pass on what I know and it's a, it's a tricky thing because back then I was being told the answers and I wasn't interested. And now that I'm interested, I'm having to concentrate back and try to find the answers that I was already told. And I think that is a metaphor for life itself. 
Because yeah. I think when we're born, we do know the answers. And slowly but surely, we either forget the answers as, as we, as we age and lose touch with and put the blinders on of adulthood and lose our childhood eyes, I, I suppose. Yeah. Hindsight's a beautiful thing. Um, I was, I was lucky in my grandfather on my father's side and my mother's side, grandmother and grandfather were alive most of my young life. And I committed to memory a lot of their stories, but, uh, a lot's been lost. Right. Do you feel that just being in the area that you're at, that there's a connection to the land itself that can kind of guide you back to those things? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the blood of my kin is in these mountains and I'll often hear people say, and I've said it myself, I, I was gone from this area for about 10 years when I moved, um, to the Midwest and where it's all flat and cornfields. And I hear often a lot of people, especially from this area, when they come back, they're, you know, whenever I see the mountains, I know I'm home. And when I'm away from them, I miss them in my soul. And that's, that's because your ancestors are here. And yeah. I believe they also travel with you, but especially when you're in the, the nexus of their lives and memories and all the things that they went through. I mean, there's a, a cemetery here that my bird ancestors were like the first ones buried there and all but my grandfather and my father are buried in that same cemetery going back seven generations and i'm going to be buried there as well one day and that's that's a whole connection of of family of kin of blood of ancestry when you have physical connections in in the sense of a graveyard where you can visit your ancestors basically right it's it's very helpful to uh to you to be able to feel this is this is my home this is where uh myself i i grew up in nova scotia but i'm on the opposite coast of uh of Canada now and I had to reconnect to the land here in specific ways there's things that you can do to kind of get yourself in touch when you're away in the, in the Midwest uh, did you have to do stuff like that to be honest when I was in the Midwest um I really shut the door on a lot of who I am and it was almost like I was trying to in leaving here, I was trying to leave everything behind and become, become okay. something different. And I didn't feel connection there until I, I came here and, or I came back and then it was just like, you know, okay, I'm home. 
at that time were you, were you uh, dealing with a lot of uh, upheaval and change? At that time, absolutely. I mean, it was um, I'd went to a place that I had had um, never known before. I, I was making an entirely new life, and everything was drawing me back here. And when I got back, it was it was like an aha moment of, okay, I understand now. It was it was a journey of learning, right. and it wasn't you know, and sometimes you have to do that. You have to get out of your own, I guess, comfort zone, and seek out new things, seek out new experiences. Um, I wouldn't trade that time for the world, but it's just something that makes me appreciate where I am now even more because I had those experiences. Do you find the the people around you now help reinforce that? Oh, absolutely. And I have a, a deep feeling that people are going to be placed in your path that, especially when you need them, when you ask for them and you need them the most, they'll be there to 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 guide you the way, whether they be uh, spirit guides or actual persons. And even now, you know, when I ask for assistance through intention, people will be placed in my path that were here all along, but it wasn't time for me to interact with them. They come in when you know, just when they were supposed to. Right time, right moment. Correct. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Can you tell us a little bit about House of Weird? So... House of Weird, um, it originated as the state of Scott, and primarily it was a place to collect uh, newspaper clippings that I had gathered, including cryptids, UFOs, ghost tales, uh, local murders, and strange stories around this area. Um, and as time went on, it kind of ev- evolved into less about this particular county and more about, you know, my experiences here and the things that influence us from the past and the future. Like, um, sometimes I'll, in House of Weird, I'll do theme weeks, um, topics that lead to other topics. Um, we had started doing stories of the Tennessee Valley Authority. And that turned into Oak Ridge's part in the Manhattan Project and how all this influenced the area that I'm in. Uh, we had multiple entries in this area in Project Blue Book that we explored. Um, we did a week on local fairy folk legends. But those that were in the group started wanting to know more of, you know, the magic side of it. So. Then I moved the spotlight out a little further from this area and the local history became just as much about my spiritual practice and whatever inspires me or whatever I find interesting as it pertains 
to our part of the Cumberlands. Okay. And that uh, kind of... When when did you get involved in the Penny Royal area? So, Penny Royal, um, I think through most people will say, um, it it all started with Hillier. Mm-hmm. And with Hillier being from this area and having spent time in Pike County where Hillier's at and then in season two where um, Somerset and Pulaski County, it it was kind of a weird thing that um, friends that I would have and associates I would have online would talk to me about, hey, um, you're in this area, you need to watch this show. And at the same time, other people were like, hey, did you know that there is a paranormal museum in Somerset? And it all kind of came to a head when um, Kyle and Nathan were on Hellier. And then, of course, Penny Royal came out. And they were, um, I would be listening to Nathan, and they would be talking a, a lot about um, the Gwithunic Order and a lot of the, the magical groups that were in this area and that was something that I knew about. So I just kind of uh sent him a message one day after I'd I'd heard Penny Royal and I was like, hey, you know, I'm down here on the Kentucky Tennessee line. Uh this is what I know about what you're you're researching and it just kind of uh, snowballed from that. Okay. Can you explain what Raven mockers are. Raven mockers. So, um, Raven mockers are a local Cherokee legend. And what, and I actually did a whole thing on House of Weird about this because it's one of those things, a lot of things, and thankfully Raven mockers haven't really been approached in the the public knowledge like um the wendigo and skinwalkers and and those legends have captured the 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 public's attention um but in a nutshell you have the what the tribe call the the night goers or the night walkers and they depending on the legend they're they're spirits, they're, um, they may be people, um, they are typically shapeshifters, um, and basically what they do is they, they prey on the elderly, the very sick, the dying, um, and part of the legend is that they, uh, devour the heart of the victim, um, and by doing so, they're able, almost like a vampire, they're able to strengthen their own life force. And they can extend their own life by doing this. Um, the ways to, they, when they feast, they're usually invisible or, um, sometimes they're in the, the form of a raven. Um, when they're in the area, they make a, they imitate a raven sounds, which is why they're called the raven mockers and raven imitators. And typically you have, um, people in the tribe that have good medicine. 
are able to see them, are able to um, stop them. And a lot of the times the tribes would have these people with medicine um, to watch over the sick and the dying to keep the, the raven mockers away. Um, I anticipate that in the next 10 years, you'll see a lot more about them once um, the, the movies for the, like, like Antlers is coming out for the, um, the Wendigos. So you'll probably see a Raven Mocker story or movie pretty soon. That'd be interesting. A lot of these um, myths, especially the Raven Mockers, brought to attention. Um, there's a man by the name of James Mooney. He had a book uh, that came out called Myths of the Cherokee, and a lot of the um, the stories from the tribes came from there. But you know, there's a lot that we don't know outside the tribe as well. So, as with anything, it's it's hidden knowledge. With that, do you find that the myths of your forebears have kind of mixed with the native myths in in the area to create new uh, new archetypes of creatures and and fairies? I think it's all subjective. I mean, ultimately, I think that especially let's take for instance, Carinos. Um, uh, there's very little actually written about. Um, the deity, but people even today are rediscovering or um, have kept Uranus in their practice. And I'm almost willing to bet that everyone has their own interpretation. Um, the point's been made when I had uh, discussed with Nathan on this is a lot of the times we bring our own needs to the deity or the archetype and we don't ask what you know is required by them we're putting our own ideas upon them so if we look at it that way you know even with folklore my story may differ from yours so how are we really to say what's correct, what's incorrect? That's true. And that even goes to Christianity because, I mean, look at all the different branches of Christianity and, oh, one will believe this, they don't believe this, another will believe it, things this way. And even the interpretations of, of Jesus himself differ from nationality to nationality and area to area. We tend to create our own interpretations based on our life experiences and the influences immediate to us. I think that ultimately everyone's path of spirituality is their own to, to tread on. And we can sit and argue uh, that this deity is supposed to be this way, this deity is supposed to be this way, but um, we're all living our own version of reality. When working with your ancestors in your own practice, does the current events affect 
how you you interact with them uh has has it since uh Hellier came out has it changed how you you uh, deal with with spirits and and fae and and everything in that area i don't think so i i think that ultimately especially with Hellier, um you had five individuals that were not from this area and they had their own experience here. Um, they had their own feelings like, um, Connor, for example, um, as soon as he got to Somerset and talked to Nathan Powell, he was like, I'm done. I'm out of here. This whole place is, and that's his reality. And with me, I've, I've learned things from, especially from the Pin Royal guys. Um, on my researcher side, um, they are a wealth of knowledge. Um, when I go to town and, you know, and we have a beer, I always regret not recording it because so much is covered, especially from Nathan. Cause once he gets wound up, he's, yeah. once he, once he gets <laughs> excited about something, he, he just goes, man. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're along for the ride. But to answer your question, I think that I've learned a lot about the area that I didn't know from Penny Royal. I don't know that it has changed my practice, but I know a lot more eyes are on this area. Um, there will be a lot more people coming to this area that did not know about the, the power source here. I, I know I didn't know about it until, until, uh, watching Hellier. Right. And that's that's an experience right there. You know, what you got out of Hellier um is completely different than what I got out of Hellier because Amy's talking about um they celebrate the Green Man um on Beltane in the Big South Fork. Mm-hmm. And I'm so you have to then think, okay, was Amy down here watching us have, um, you know, a festival or something that she misinterpreted. Um, when it's like, for example, the, the poster for Hellier season two, um, they have an inverted pentagram on the, one of their posters and the, it's over a map and they've got like the ribbon, um, that they make the star and then like the, the bottom point when you look on the map, is right over my house. Okay. And it's like, I mean, and I, I messaged Greg Newkirk and I was like, what am I supposed to do with this information? <laughs> Are you trying to tell me something? And, you know, I, I might need you to send some help. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I wouldn't know what to do with that either. <laughs> it's, it's, what do you it's just, it's just one of those things. I mean, you, you just have to, okay. And, and move on with it. Awesome. Are there any books or sites on Tennessee and folklore that you would suggest? For Tennessee, um, there is a, one of the, the best websites I've ever come across was, um, and it's something you'll have to Google. It's like, uh, Tennessee, like T-N, Gen, G-E-N, Web, W-E-B. And they have a, 
section for every county in Tennessee. And within those, they have old records, they have history, um, they have, it's just a, a wealth of information. When it comes to folklore around Tennessee, um, Christopher Coleman is, has several great books, including Strange Tales of the Dark and Bloody Ground. Um, he also has a blog that's called uh, Dixie Spirits that has a lot of tales around here. Um, there's a area just south of me that was a, an English colony um, called Rugby that the author Thomas Hughes started back in the um, 1860s, maybe. And he wrote in his books a lot about the the ghosts that are there. Um, I mentioned before, Charles Edwin Price is a good one. Um, he's the one that wrote The Haints, Witches, and Boogers. But a lot of, especially with the, the advent of of the internet it's it's all there to find you just have to to look it up and have some time to go down the rabbit hole but um tennessee and especially with us being so close to the kentucky border i don't tend to see the penny royal stories as different from my stories and on a larger picture i don't see the ozark stories being different from the Appalachian stories because, you know, especially in Kentucky and Tennessee, the quartz goes from Pulaski County all the way down through my area. The cave systems are all part of the same thing. Um, lines were created by men and we can put different, and we have a lot of, especially now, um, we'll have a group that'll be you know, Tennessee hauntings or something and something will happen two miles from the, the state line, but that's not considered because, Oh, that's in Kentucky now. And people tend to think that, Oh, well, this county is different from this county and this state is different from this state or even this country is different from this country, but the land is all connected. So what you even found when you moved that, you know, you had to just reconnect. And it was still all there. Yeah. With with your own practices, do you find that things have kind of ramped up in the last while? Absolutely. That's there has definitely become um and I think that, you know, what we're doing, what you're doing, what I'm doing, what uh Pinaroyal's doing, what Hellier did, um, I think that is all feeding into that as well um i know in this particular area especially Asheville, north carolina in that area um it's becoming the the new sedona because so many eyes are open to this area now and it's just ramping up and i think that we're in an age where everything's ramping up anyway the Native tribes, the, the elders of our ancestors, they knew where all these places were. These places were sacred and these places are waking up again. And we just have to take note 
and turn off all our electronics and actually go outside and reconnect. And that's, that's kind of, I think where we're at now is who's going to win. Will it be, um, technology or is it going to be nature? Because we're getting to that point where it's going to have to be decided. And I know with, as you know, with what Pinero is doing, um, those guys, they claim they don't know anything about magic, but they're, they're doing technomancy every day. Exactly it. Um, so I think at some point we're going to end up with a blend of both. I hope so. I hope it, I hope it can coexist. I hope that we get to the point where we stop meddling and just find a way to, for everybody to have their own reality. And maybe that's, that's the key with everybody having their separate reality. We just have to agree on coexisting and everything will be relaxed and groovy. I've talked with Einar Selvik about the same subject. He felt that years ago we fought against nature just to survive. And at one point we fought so hard that we disconnected ourselves from it. And the spiritual journey since then has been kind of like, it kind of mirrors your, your journey. You had to get away from where you were at to grow enough that when you came back to it, you understood that connection. You understood why it was home. Absolutely. And, and he's absolutely right. I think to add to that thought that when we basically committed a genocide against an entire race of people here in the States that, uh, you know, that was a war on nature as well because they lived with the land. They lived with, um, what the New Guinea, which was basically the same as the, the little people of Ireland and, and Scotland. I mean, they knew about all this. And our answer was, as invaders, was, oh, well, we're just going to murder you all. Yeah, in Canada, we did just as bad and are still doing it in places. And it's a lot of anger and pain that needs to be worked through to get to a point where we can heal those wounds. Absolutely. And I think we need to to listen more. to to nature, to each other, um, and just, I think the, the world needs more empathy, and I think that's coming. It's part of our spiritual awakening in this period, I think, that we realize we have to be more the steward than the invader. Right. And that's the way it was always supposed to be, and we kind of lost sight of that. Can you recommend any locations in the Smokies where people can visit that isn't a tourist trap. So if you avoid Pigeon Forge, that's that's going to be your, your biggest tip that I can give you, because that's where Dollywood's at. That's where all the, um, basically it's the Branson of, of Tennessee. Um, you have to typically go through Pigeon Forge to get to Gatlinburg. Gatlinburg is also turned into just a ginormous tourist trap but if you avoid those places um there are places in the smoggies 
once you get to the Smokies themselves, it's, it's all good. I mean, there's a place that they call the house of the fairies that was, um, this person's home that has waterfalls and, and it's vacant now and, and just what is, whatever's left there, it just looks like it has been left, um, for the Fey folk. Um, I know Kate's Cove is, it can be touristy at times, um, just by amount of people there, but it's, it's beautiful. Um, a rare place that not a lot of people know about is what's called Clingman's Dome. Um, it's the highest mountain in the Smokies and it's also a vortex. I know that Paige Bryant in her book, The Spiritual Reawakening of the Great Smoky Mountains, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. Uh, she writes that the Smokies are just dotted with large and small electromagnetic vortexes and grids of intense natural power. And Clingman Dome is definitely one of those places. You get, you can feel it when you get there. Um, do you find that because of your, your spiritual background, that when you walk into an area, you can feel the spirit of the, of the, of that place? It depends on the place, really. Um, there are, especially when I was a child, I, there were places that instinctively I knew, okay, as soon as I got there, I, I, I can't be here. I've got to leave. There's something not right here. Um, depending on if you go to, um, like if I go to an antique sh- shop, um, where there's a lot of things from estate sales and such that possibly is, um, connected to spirit. I, I just get overwhelmed. I can't even, I can't breathe. I have to turn around and go back out. Um, I'll give the International Paranormal Museum a, a mention. Um, there are spirits there that I'm very grounded. So I don't see a lot of the spirits and that's by choice on my, that's just through my own experiences and where I just turned it off and I, I'm like, nope. But I have a friend that I went to the museum with and she's what I call a, a red wire. I'm, I'm kind of a black wire. Um, if you think of it as, you know, um, a hot wire and a ground yeah. wire for a battery. And I think a lot of people are that way, but she is, she has no ground. And if there's something there, she, she knows about it. She's telling me about it. She's telling me what it's doing. <laughs> but yeah, like with the museum, there is a side room that's, that Kyle considers his haunted room. And when I go in, you can feel a change in the air. You can feel a change, you know, you can feel the, the energy change, but it's not an unpleasant energy. I've, I've never, I've never been in there and went, Oh, okay. I've got to go. Um, I could stay in, especially because it's got all its books in it. So that helps. But, but it's, but you also have places, especially in Somerset, um, 
like, for example, I, I don't know if you're aware of Soul Chapel. It's a, it's got a whole legend to it. Um, we don't know if half of it's true, but it has become a void vortex <laughs> to set, to such a degree that, that it is attracting despair. It is attracting negativity. Um, a lot of people who have addiction problems go there and they will overdose. Something draws them there. And those are places that as soon as I'm in a place like that where it's, if it's really negative, then I'm, I'm gone. I, I won't even, I won't even step foot in a place like that. Speaking of weirdness, uh, I just heard a voice behind me and there's no one behind me. What did they say? Uh, Adam. Uh huh. Um, is, it, is that is that any connection that you know of? It's or? a connection to uh, an image of uh, a voodoo priest that I saw in in the flash stream, one of Greg and Dana's uh, live streams. Interesting. Weirdness. <laughs> What what I'll find, um, especially if I'm just if I'm grounded and I've got everything shut down, the door shut, and I'll find that if I'm around someone that is a medium or is sensitive or can hear spirits, if I'm not listening, they will find someone who will listen. So they can get the message to me. And, and my grandparents or my grandmothers are notorious for that. The last time I had a reading, um, from this lovely lady that was from Knoxville, she was just like, okay, okay, slow down, slow down. Just wait. It's too much. Too much. <laughs> I said, she's talking your ear off, isn't she? She said, she is. I said, that's because I won't listen to her. She's been wanting to tell me something and. And it, it almost becomes like a game of telephone. There was a, a medium that um, had a message not for me, but for my mom. But since I wasn't listening, she had to go through a third party that went through me that finally got to my mom. And that happens a lot. They, they will find the path of least resistance. Right. Exactly. Uh, he's he's not paying attention. Let me let me find somebody else to that'll talk to him. That happens. Yeah. Um, I've had a very limited interaction with Random Nautica, um, and I think a lot of it has to do with just my area, because sometimes you may, if you don't have a correct um, search area. It'll put you in the middle of somebody's house and around here, that'll get you shot. So <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't want to go, go on someone else's property without now seeing yourself. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not Tyler Strand, so I'm not going <laughs> to just knock on people's doors. <laughs> it, it, yeah. It's kind of a death wish situation. I, it was the same back in, in Nova Scotia. There were, Places in Nova Scotia you don't go without announcing yourself. Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Um, there's places here that 
um, especially what they call Smoky Junction um, in our county, that unless you're unless you know your lineage, you better not go there because that's the only thing that's going to keep you safe. Or you can say, "Oh, I'm I'm a Lao or I'm a McGee, and this is how I'm kin." Okay, because they they they're like, "You don't belong here." And you need to go. At, at least, at least they'll give you a warning. Sometimes. Oh yeah, and that's that's why I I really am concerned about um with things like Hillier because then you'll have people like there's a a guy that's local to that area. He was like, oh, I know all the actual um spots that Hillier was filmed in. I'm doing tours and. First of all, it's like you don't want to be bringing people there because then the knowledge will spread where these areas are at and they'll start to become vandalized. Um, but to some of these places, um, if you go to Hillier in Pike County and talk to them about the, the documentary, they're typically not happy about it because it's brought a lot of strangers in the area and when you have areas like that that where there's not much going on, that's that's attention they don't want. Mm-hmm. Especially if if uh, there's shiners around, they don't want that attention because it brings attention to what they're doing. Most most of that's going legal though. We're we're going legal. Oh my god, my grandfather's rolling over his grave. <laughs> my my grandfather would would be that way too. He. Uh, who was a, a rum runner yeah. uh, back in the 30s. And he was young then. He learned learned to make uh, great rum. Uh, I was lucky enough to have uh, a bit of his stock, his private stock, uh, when I was 16. Uh, That's that's amazing. <laughs> See, and 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 it's little things like that. I mean, that he was he was part of that. You know, that's something that belonged to him, and that was something that was made by him. Mm-hmm. So that's that's extra special. It uh, we didn't find it until we had to tear out uh, the floor in his his old place. So he had he hidden. had he had a, a concrete bo- box under the floor. With oh, 80, that's the best. 80 bottles, like the old uh, uh, moonshiner jugs full of rum. That is awesome. I think we had 12, 12 of them that, that were actually good. The rest were kind of, they turned to vinegar because the seal broke. Yeah. But, damn, that was good stuff. <laughs> 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 and uh, my dad didn't know about it until... Until he found us drunk as skunks. <laughs> I was going to say until until you had grown a full beard yep. overnight. It had been in the rust though. <laughs> uh, that 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 ended with me having to clean out a car that was uh, ate by a dog and left in the heat for for a couple of weeks in in August. Oh, it was bad. He couldn't even go near it without yakking his face off. <laughs> so that was that was my punishment for for getting drunk underage. 
I don't know if that was worth it, but I'm going to say it was. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh, I, I can look back and laugh now. But needless to say, I didn't touch a, a, a lick of liquor until I was 20. <laughs> That's what my mom told me when I was young that beer was made out of rotten apples. And when I became a teenager and started to want to drink, it's all I can taste. Even to this day, I'm like, ah, oh, man, this is, this is nasty. I can't, I can't drink this. Rotten apples. Huh? Rotten apples. That, that's a good way of uh, stopping kids from drinking. That's for sure. Because everyone knows that that taste. Yep. <laughs> um, are there any projects that you're working on right now that are new that you're willing to talk about? Uh, my main project. It's it's kind of my passion project, I should say. Uh, it's called the Caretaker Project. It's continuing to grow. Uh, it started earlier this year on the basis that we believe that only by cooperation and changing the current culture of ghost hunting and international paranormal groups can we debunk local um, urban legends and other incorrect information that are being um, placed on individuals that are buried and attributed to the areas that are negatively affecting the burial areas, including cemeteries, graveyards, mounds, and other sacred locations. Um, we had talked about today about the guy that was attributing the, um, the witch legend yeah. to this grave. And even after me totally debunking it, he was like, well, I don't know about all that. Well, it's it's called facts, dude. <laughs> you can, and it and it and I'm, and you know, listen, I'm I love folklore. I mean, I am all about it. Tell me a ghost story. Tell me, um, about the 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 ghost lady of of Brimstone and what she did. But once you start placing it on a person who was a completely normal person, you know, in life. And you put this on this grave, it's you're doing a disservice to that person's memory and to that person's families. There's and what really got me started was there's an area in the next county over that's called Red Ash. And it's over the last 10 years has gotten a lot of notoriety. Um, some paranormal investigators went there and they wrote about it in their blogs. And over the last 10 years, it's, it's kind of been like a game of telephone where it started of, Hey, we may have um, got some evidence or evidence of, of apparitions or something to, okay, there's a witch grave there, there are hellhounds, there are an eight-foot um, goat man with a blazing red pentagram carved on his forehead. And it brings people, because they see this stuff on the internet and they believe that it's true, and they go to this little cemetery that's just like every other little cemetery in this area, um, it's creepy to some because it's kind of forgotten, but 
the families of these people are still there and these people are coming in and they're doing their ghost hunts and they're getting their views on YouTube. And then other people are seeing this. They're wanting to go there to get scared. Um, they're wanting to vandalize and destroy stones. And the Caretaker Project, basically, I've been spending most of this year um, writing essays on why you shouldn't ghost hunt in cemeteries and bring attention to a lot of the the things that are happening on the internet that is causing you know real harm to these areas. When you, when you dis, it's disrespectful, really, to uh, to put a false narrative on people. Absolutely, and particularly on people that can't de- defend themselves because they're gone. Right. There was a stone in Kingsport. They had a a witch grave legend, uh, and it was on the grave. It was W. H. Um, Price, and the people were like, um, "Oh, well, W. H. stood for Witch Hazel, Witch Hazel Price." That and they had this whole legend on this, and people would go, they would. They would see the the information online, and then they would go and make a video about it. And they're just kind of regurgitating this story that wasn't true in the first place. And then when you go in and you're like, okay, this was a merchant. That's why he had an iron gate around his grave, because he was affluent. Mm -hmm. His name was William H. Price. His wife is buried next to him. There's no witches. And... These people don't want to take their information down because, oh, well, people might see my video. And I spent a lot of time on this video telling this this fake story. At least they should admit that it's not the truth. Right. At at the very least. But um, this year we tried to, speaking of Red Ash, we tried to set up interest in going and you know um cleaning the the graveyard making sure everything was mowed um cleaning the stones and people i know we're we're in a really weird time um but people are more interested in going there to be scared than they are to actually do something about it and that's the uphill battle that we're kind of in right now is to get people motivated and to get people to actually want to get involved and actually, you know, do something more than liking a post about it. Mm. What about bringing back tradition or bringing traditions like uh, Day of the Dead, where when you go to your kin, kin's grave and, uh, Basically, spend an afternoon with them, being well, respecting them, saying hello to them. We, and I can remember this. Um, we had a lot of traditions when I that were still here when I was a child. Um, I can remember sitting up at the dead. I can remember, you know, um, going on what we call Memorial Day weekend, 
where we would just go to the graveyard and spend all day um, with family um, and with our loved ones, like what you're talking about. But those traditions have have long passed, unfortunately. The the new generations weren't brought up with those traditions, so it's harder to introduce those customs back into our society. I wish it would go back to that because that was a time where you know when you're when you remember being with all your cousins and laying flowers on all your loved ones' graves and hearing stories about them and bringing them back alive. That's that's things that I miss now. Having connection to your family. Correct. It's very important. Um, that's that's why we're doing our preservation projects. Um, because there's so many of us that don't have that connection. The connection's been broken for whatever reasons. Because uh, families have fights. They get separated. That side of the family doesn't communicate with the other side. And then you end up with a whole bit of genealogy as well as connection to that side of the family has been lost. Right. Um, I was just going to say that, you know, when you do genealogy, you look at, all right, you have a, a mother and a father. Um, they had a mother and a father. And before you know it, when you go back enough generations, like even seven, eight generations, you're talking about hundreds of people mm -hmm. that if they, all their experiences, all their, the things that happened in their life, if one thing changed, you may not be here. It's true. You, you are a product of all of the aspirations and dreams and hopes that they had for the future. And we kind of owe it to our ancestors to not only honor them, but to make the world where we want it for our children so that, and their children. So when they look back, they'll carry on our same aspirations for them. It's true. Particularly now with climate change and all of the, the stuff that the, the illnesses that we've dealt with. We really need that connection to who we are. We need to be able to look forward as well as back and, and be able to say, okay, we're connected here. We need to make sure that our grand, grandchildren's grandchildren will be able to have a, a, a world to live on. Right. And I think, especially in this area, um, by keeping a lot of the traditions that my grandparents had, I mean, you know, they lived through the Great Depression. They, this area is, um, primarily poverty stricken, even now. Um, the, the Appalachian Mountains, the, the government doesn't do a lot to help us, especially now that the coal mines are shut down and such. So we're kind of, Going back a lot, you know, even 
taking away spirituality, just general life practices. Um, we continue um, hunting, fishing, doing things the way we used to do. And that, when society collapses, that's going to be the things that's going to carry us through to the next age is just remembering how to survive like our forefathers did before all this was made easy for us. Speaking with Matthew today was great. He is a friend and has a wealth of knowledge. I thank him profusely for coming on the show. Please check out House of Weird and The Caretaker Project. Support them both if you can. I will put uh, the links in the show notes for you. Once again, please take care and we'll see you soon. <laughs>